Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. That's right. All right, at least we cheered. There was Okay, maybe not every week, huh? We got anyone care to dance? Or at least in your heart, maybe you're dancing? Yeah, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you're wondering, what on earth is he? If you miss a week, you miss a lot. The, the, the reason I ask about dancing when God's Word is announced is we're on a, a second, the second of a three-part message on obedience. And, and the last time we learned that in the first century at least, God's people would dance in anticipation of His Word being read. And that customary, joyful greeting to God's Word um, has been largely lost among Christians today, it seems. And I suggested to you one reason perhaps we don't dance over God's Word anymore is, is because we equate God's Word with obedience. And our idea or our feeling towards obedience doesn't exactly make us want to dance anymore. You see Webster's definition of obedience on the screen again. Obedience, Webster says, means to comply with or be submissive to authority. And I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago, no wonder we don't dance over a definition like that. Yes, we get to comply with and be submissive to, a, uh, to authority. Let's dance. You know, not exactly our response, is it? And so we're taking a fresh look for a few weeks at defining or redefining, really, obedience. I don't think Webster's quite catches the biblical definition or feel toward obedience. And so last time, last time we saw how obedience means freedom. It also means freedom. And freedom's more of a dancing word. Obedience to God means freedom from having to try and figure it all out, having to try and figure out life on our own. Obedience is freedom from that burden. God tells us our best life yet. God gives us our purpose-driven life, so we don't have to try and figure it out on our own. Obedience gives us that freedom, praise God, because that's an obedience we can dance about. Today, we'll build on our definition of obedience by suggesting that obedience is also faith. Obedience is freedom, and obedience is faith. Now, a few words about that word faith. Our tendency sometimes seems to be to equate faith only with what we believe or what we think or what we know to be true. Now, to be sure, our faith includes what we believe, think, and know. But our faith also includes what we do, how we live. Our faith includes our actions. Let me try and illustrate the truth of that conclusion, that our faith includes not only what's in our head, but what's in and through the rest of us too, including our actions. Do you think that the devil believes, thinks, and knows that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Do you think the devil believes, thinks, and knows, I mean really believes, honestly thinks, and knows to the deepest part of his knowing that Jesus died on that cross and rose from the dead for the sins of the world? Do you think he knows this? Does he believe it? Of course the devil believes and knows that. He was there. But there isn't anyone here today who would say that simply because the devil believes, thinks, and knows what's true about Jesus means the devil has faith in Jesus or believes in Jesus or the devil is saved. And why not? Because the devil doesn't live. He doesn't act according to his belief. For in other words, the devil isn't obedient. And so faith and obedience are inseparable. It's faith in Jesus. It's belief in Jesus that saves us. And that in part includes not only our mental assent, but also our actions. Now, to be sure, our actions don't save us. We are indeed saved by grace and grace alone. This is something Martin Luther emphasized, and we should too, No one earns salvation. Works don't earn us salvation. They don't save us. But, or and, I would also claim that our merely knowing about Jesus or believing the truth about Jesus doesn't save us either. There needs to be an ownership of our belief and knowing about Jesus. And this owning of our belief shows in our actions. It must show. If it doesn't, it's not a saving faith. So faith includes both thought and action. Or in the language of Shema, faith includes all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our might, all of every part of us, including how we live. Obedience is a meaningful part of our faith. Your Bibles are open, perhaps, to Romans, Romans chapter 1. And it's in chapter 1 we find that very famous and well-known verse 17 where Martin Luther found his basis for taking issue with the church of his day for suggesting that people can somehow earn their salvation. The righteous will live by faith, the Apostle Paul declares. But even right there in that famous line, Don't miss the word live, or the words live by. It's not only about the faith that's in our heads and what we think or believe. It's about living by our faith. And that verb, the verb live, now come on, it's got to be the mother of all action verbs, it seems to me, doesn't it? To live. Faith is not only about what's in our heads, Our faith expresses itself in our actions as well. Obedience is a crucial part of our faith, my brothers and sisters. We can see further in the context of Romans 1.17. Twelve verses earlier, the Apostle Paul introduces his famous, The Righteous Will Live by Faith. Actually, it's Habakkuk's that Paul is quoting from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. But look at the foundation Paul lays to the righteous will live by faith, quote, Paul opens Romans by describing his call to ministry, his mission, his goal. Paul says his assignment, if you will, is to call people to the what? 
Call people to the what? Call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Wow! Paul doesn't say his end goal is to only call people to faith. But he goes further. Paul is after the obedience that comes from the faith. That's his target. And it should be ours as well. Now, please hear me again. My first point here this morning is to not is not to take us down the heretical road of works-based righteousness. So let me emphasize again. We cannot earn our salvation from God by what we do. Salvation is given to us by God's amazing grace and His amazing grace alone. But I'm wondering, especially this week and this morning, if in our haste to flee from works-based righteousness heresy, as we should, but I wonder if in our haste to flee from works-based righteousness, we also flee from obedience. Do we sometimes use grace and grace alone as a way to diminish the nevertheless central role of obedience? James, Paul, Jesus all underline the importance of obedience. Faith without works is dead. It's not a saving faith, James tells us. Paul, we just saw, tells us we need to live by our faith. And Jesus' great commission to his disciples is to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so faith and obedience belong together. They are inseparable. And I emphasize that this morning because I'm wondering if, if we viewed obedience as more central to our faith and who we are in Christ Jesus, then perhaps we often feel while swimming around in the pool of grace, we might approach obedience with a little more eagerness and joy. To be faithful is to be obedient. To embrace our faith is to embrace obedience. To celebrate and dance over grace is to celebrate and dance over obedience. My hope is that somehow we can somehow borrow at least some of the joy we feel about grace, and we should. But can we borrow some of that joy we feel about grace and feel something of the same, at least, towards obedience? Why is that hard to do? To feel joyful about obedience. Last time I suggested simply one reason it's hard is because we don't like being told what to do. Our very nature ever since Genesis bristles when someone tells us what to do. Like Paul, we kick against the goads. But another reason I'd like to add to that list this morning of why it's hard to feel joyful about obedience is shame. I wonder if it's hard for us to obey or feel joyful about obeying because we're ashamed of our obedience or God's desire that we obey. 
ashamed that God desires our obedience. I, I remember when I was a young boy reading about Jesus in church, and the pastor was preaching on the story where Jesus tells his disciples they shouldn't be ashamed of him. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And, and I remember feeling, uh, I was shocked. And I was shocked because I thought, why would those disciples be ashamed of Jesus? I had the same reaction as a young boy when reading Paul's letter to Timothy. Why would Paul even have to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed to testify about Jesus? I mean, Jesus died to save the world. Why would that shame us? Seems like that's something to be proud of. And I remember thinking as a young boy, silly disciples, silly Timothy, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Wonder what their problem was. But then I did what most people not named Benjamin Button do. I grew older. Teacher-preacher humor. It's so bad, it's good. (laughs) Benjamin Button's the guy in the movie that starts out old and grows younger. Okay. I grew older, and as I grew older, I discovered life got harder. And I began appreciating more the strength of the temptation to be ashamed of my faith. And the temptation to feel foolish for trying to be obedient even when life stayed hard or even got harder because I obeyed. That temptation to feel, hey, this obedience thing doesn't work too good. And maybe embarrassed to tell people about my God, our God, when He doesn't always make life a breeze when we obey. Shameful. Or it's tempted. It's tempting to feel shameful about that, I think, sometimes. And Paul gives us a hint that this is indeed the shame he's talking about, both in Romans to his young, and to his young friend Timothy. In that same chapter 1 of Romans, after telling us he is about teaching obedience that comes from faith, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Does Paul recognize that obedience might feel shameful sometimes, especially when according to the world's standards, at least, it doesn't seem to be working? In 2 Timothy, Paul even more directly connects the temptation to feel ashamed to the hard circumstances in life. He tells Timothy, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel. And then Paul says the reason he is suffering is because he was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel. Yet I am not ashamed, Paul says, of his suffering for the gospel. And then Paul praises Onesiphorus because... His friend was not ashamed of Paul's suffering, Paul's chains. Now, as others have pointed out, there may also be shame, especially in the first century, that Jesus our Lord was executed on the cross. That would have been especially scandalous for them 
in the first century especially. I was reading through the men's uh, ministry materials this week and someone suggested that we might also be ashamed today that we believe Jesus actually rose from the dead when science, a very powerful and respected voice in our culture today, says that's silly. And yes, both of those things, both the cross and the resurrection, might also be a source of our shame. But, or and, the shame Paul is talking about here and the shame I'd like to focus on this morning with you seems to me as linked to the fact that even though obedient, we still suffer. Life is still hard. And our tendency may be to react to that with shame. It may be this very shame that causes some, however well-intended Christians, to try and value-add to the gospel by teaching that if done right, obedience results in health and wealth, necessarily in this lifetime as the world defines it. Maybe they're teaching that because they feel that shame. If you want to read a great book on the lie of the health and wealth heresy, please read Job. Where you will find a man who despite and even because of being the most righteous, most obedient, man on earth nevertheless lives through the pain of all ten of his children dying at once, not to mention he loses his health, he loses his wealth, and he is abandoned if not condemned by his wife and friends for the life of me. I cannot see how anyone can claim both that the Bible is true and preach a health and wealth heresy. The two cannot stand together, my friends. So are we ashamed that the gospel includes suffering? Are we ashamed that Jesus tells us we need to take up our cross daily, Luke adds, and follow Him? What a statement! Take up our cross daily. Are we ashamed of that message? I'm suggesting one reason we find it hard to obey is because we're ashamed that our faith nevertheless includes in this life hard things and includes effort and perseverance and everything we've got. So help us God. See, the world says the good life is comfort and pleasure and doing nothing. The good life is perpetual vacation, at least in the West. And then the Bible comes along and God tells us the good life requires everything we've got with His help to be sure, but all our heart, all our soul, all our might. There's just a slight difference between what the world and what God describes as our best life now. So do we hesitate or lose our desire to dance over obedience because we're ashamed it doesn't seem to be working by the world's standards? Do circumstances in life B 
beat back our faith, cause our faith, our obedience that comes from faith, to waver. In preparing for the sermon this week, I was reminded of the movie Karate Kid, of all things. And how it illustrates what Christian obedience and faith is often like. Not always, but sometimes. In the movie, for those of you who have seen it, those of you who haven't, let me at least introduce it. In the movie, Daniel, the boy Daniel. I wonder if that name was on purpose. Probably not, but it's an amazing biblical name. God is my judge. God is my vindication. In the movie, Daniel signs on to learn karate from a famous rabbi, Mr. Miyagi, or sensei, they would say. (laughs) You remember Mr. Miyagi. And Daniel trusts Mr. Miyagi, puts his faith in Mr. Miyagi to care for him and to love him and to prepare him and equip him for an upcoming karate tournament. That's how you say karate, if you know what you're talking about. Or maybe if you don't. And, and Daniel's faith in Mr. Miyagi is tested. Daniel's commitment to obedience is tested. Not a whole lot unlike our own faith and commitment to obedience to God is tested. Let's watch. Let's make sacred pact. I promise teach karate, that to my part. You promise learn. I say you do, no question, that to your part. Deal? Steal. Yes. First wash all the car, then wax. Wax. Well, what do I have to wash all the car? Remember, deal. No question. Yeah, but I... Right. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Wax on, wax off. You should ask. Right the circle. Left the circle. Wait, wouldn't it be easier going back and forth? Aye, 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 but you go circle. Right the circle. Left the circle. Right the circle. Left the circle. Breathe in, breathe out. Right the circle. 
That's the Sarko. Like the Sarko. He's in. He's out. Ever feel that way about obedience to God? What in the world is going on here, God? I thought I thought you loved me. I thought you said you'd be my God, but what's going on doesn't seem like you know what you're doing. Now, unlike... Mr. Miyagi, God allows us, in fact, encourages us to ask questions, pray. He doesn't shut us down when we have questions, but even so, in my experience at least, maybe yours too, and the Bible tells us this as well, sometimes God's plan, sometimes God's answers to our questions, well, we don't always find them very satisfactory. They don't seem to us, like the best answers. If you ever feel that way about God or faith or obedience, the Christian walk is frustrating you because it doesn't seem to make any sense at all in light of an all-powerful God who loves you deeply. 
rather than shy away from obedience and shame, Mr. Miyagi in this next clip gives very sound advice when he says to Daniel, Ah, not everything is as seems. Let's watch. Oh, this spot. What spot? Hey, hey, how come you didn't tell me you were going fishing? You're not here when I go. Well, maybe I would have wanted to go. You ever think of that? You karate training. I'm what? I'm being your slave is what I'm being, man. Now, we made a deal here. So? So? So you're supposed to teach and I'm supposed to learn, remember? Ah, uh, you learn plenty. I learned plenty. I learned how to sand your decks, maybe. I wash your car, paint your house, paint your fence. I learned plenty, right? Uh, not everything is as seen. I'm going home, man. Daniel-san! Daniel-san! What? Come here. Show me sand the floor. Sand the floor. Stand up. Show me sand the floor. Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Now show me wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Concentrate. Show me paint the fence. Up, down. Up, down. Up, down. Show me paint the house. Side, side. Lock wrist. Side, side. Side, side. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me pen to fence. Show me side to side. Show me sand of floor. You ever want to shout, as Daniel said, I can't believe this, and kick something? If you're ever there, remember, not everything is as seem. If Daniel hadn't obeyed, even when it made no sense to him, he wouldn't have been prepared. He would not have won in the end, which he does in the karate tournament. One brief caveat here before we're finished this morning. I need to say this. Not every hardship 
we experience is given us directly from God as a lesson. Some are, but not everyone is. Many hardships, much chaos is from the devil, our own sinful choices and the sinful choices of others. God doesn't use evil means to accomplish His good ends. It's not what Romans 8.28 says. Romans 8.28 promises that in all things, God works for good. That translation of the NIV Bible is much better than the King James, which says all things work together for good. Big difference there. God doesn't use evil for good, but He promises that regardless of the evil that may surround us, God is right there with us in it, working for our good despite it. Now, I know the hardships that we face in life are a lot tougher than waxing cars and painting fences. Our kids get sick. Or even die. Our marriages and other relationships struggle. There's not enough money to buy food this week. But the principle, at least, the, the encouragement still holds. Things are not what they seem. Those hard things are not more powerful than our God who is powerful and does love us. Even if it doesn't seem like it or feel like it to us sometimes. So take heart and don't be ashamed of obeying all the more when hard things happen. Because whether those hard things are of God or of the devil, tough things in this life are a proving ground for our faith to strengthen us and also to show God to the world our witness. And He promises He's there with us in the midst of hard things, every painful step of the way, giving us the strength and the courage to, in fact, daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. Obedience is freedom. Freedom from having to try and figure it all out on our own. And obedience is faith. It's faith in God, faith in Jesus, including both thought and action. Faith no matter what might seem in possible circumstances. So take heart with me, my brothers and sisters, and, and maybe even dance a little over obedience. Maybe even dance especially over obedience. Next week, oh, I've saved my favorite for last. Obedience is love. Don't miss that one. If you can help it, I know I won't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to praise you and thank you today for giving us your guide, your word, and asking us, requiring us to participate in the dance of obedience. Thank you for allowing us not only to think our faith, 
But since we're human beings who love to live and create and do and act, thanks for also giving us the challenge, the joyful challenge of living out and doing our faith. Help us, Father, against shame. Help us, Father, from feeling shameful of you asking us to obey. Help us to see and to live with kingdom, heavenly kingdom perspective that even the toughest things in this life, they are not as they seem. And they are temporary and will pass. We love you. And we praise you. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand please for a closing benediction, a closing bit of God's good words, His blessing. This from the prophet Jeremiah. God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.